Okay, in just a minute, um, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7 in a moment. But before I do that, Pastor Randall asked me to read this letter uh, to you as a church. And it's uh, just an appreciation for you all and what you've done for giving him a vacation. He says, I want to express deep appreciation for the time you've given me for rest and recovery. The month of October has been like receiving new life once again. The Lord has been very gracious in giving me answers to all of my questions, giving me much-needed rest, and helping me to get my priorities and resolves ironed out. The entire month worked out perfectly. I was able to read books, ride my bike, sit around the campfire, enjoy God's creation, and spend some much-needed quality time with my wife. The time that I have had to rest has caused me to love the Lord Jesus even more, be strengthened to invest all I have, into helping the church to be healthy and shown me once again the true motive for pastoral ministry. It is my ongoing prayer and hope that I'll be faithful to the Lord Jesus and serve his church in such a way that he will be honored and your souls will be strengthened. I will seek to do all that I can, all that I can do to serve the church well by preaching, teaching, praying, and leading by example so that the church will be healthy and produce much fruit for our glorious Lord. At the same time, I know that it is the Lord alone who will strengthen me to do the work that he has called me to do. I also want to give a great big thanks to those who have texted me words of encouragement, prayed for me, and for the way that many of you showed concern for my dad during these last few days. I'm so thankful for a church that shows genuine love towards my family and I. Second, I do not know who, is all, who all has worked on the remodeling of my kitchen, but I cannot put into words the gratitude I have for the kindness that you have shown to my wife. The kitchen's looking fabulous, and we are very thankful. I've been living in my RV since April, but it's looking like I'll be back in my house before Thanksgiving. Our hearts are full of gratitude, and I hope that we can show our thanks to you by serving you well in the upcoming year. I look forward to seeing you all next Sunday and preaching Acts chapter 2, 25-28. For the evening service, I'll either preach the chapter that the Lord gave me during my time off, or I will preach Proverbs 3, 13 to 18. Lord willing, I'll see you next Sunday. I love each of you and count it as the greatest privilege on earth to be able to serve you. Press on all the more as you see the day approaching. It will not be long, and we will be in eternity with the Lord Jesus. Your pastor, J. Randall Easter. Well, praise God. And uh, I'll tell you, I've not spent a lot of time with him this week. He's been in and out uh, the last couple of days. But I have spent, you know, a, f a few times with him. And it's really remarkable to me, like, just how chill he is right now. Like, he is relaxed. And um, I think I've told the guys this morning in our prayer meeting that I think it's probably the most relaxed I've seen him since he had the sabbatical. So praise God. That's... He's right to thank you for that. And so give glory to God for that. All right, so we are in Matthew 7. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the service today, we are going to bring Vivian into membership formally. And uh, just so that's on your radar as well and on mine. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in 21 through 23. But I think it would be good to go back to verse 15 and uh, read that to give it its context and make a couple of observations. The title of the sermon is, I Never Knew You. 
Matthew 7, verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. In this part of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This gets quoted all the time by like liberal uh, Protestants. Like This is the ethical standard that we should have. And they give great big flowery speeches about the Sermon on the Mount and how we should all live by the Sermon on the Mount. But they don't really talk much about Matthew 7 at the very end. In fact, I'll be honest with you, most churches won't ever touch Matthew 7 from the pulpit on a Sunday morning or any other time. There's a warning here. In verse 15, beware of false prophets. And the statement is that on the outside they look like they belong with the kingdom of God. They're wearing sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're in it for themselves. You'll recognize them by the fruit. It's just a basic spiritual principle, very basic illustration. You look for grape, you know, grapes, grapevine's going to bear grapes. Fig tree, going to bear figs. But if you find rotten fruit, bad fruit, coming off of a professor of, of truth and preaching the gospel or whatever, you know that something's wrong. The fruit of the ministry. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This does not just apply to teachers. It applies to everyone in the kingdom of God. It's not just for preachers, although there's a heavy emphasis in verses 21 through 23 on those that are called to ministry. But yet, it applies equally across the board. When you've got bad fruit, you can recognize someone as whether or not they're in the kingdom by that fruit. Now, the gospel hasn't changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is you repent of your sins, you place your faith in Christ, and you're made right with God. You're justified by faith in Christ alone. Works don't have anything to do with you getting saved. But the fruit follows salvation. And if there isn't fruit, there's no salvation. If there's no sanctification, there's never been any justification. If there's no progress towards growth in Christ, I mean, we have those ups and downs on the line. If you took the church membership class, you remember Pastor Randall's diagram. Once you come to faith in Christ, there's a progression that changes, and there's ups and downs in that, but the direction is still the same. But if there's none of that, if there is no sanctification, there's never been justification, and you can be assured there will never be any glorification. You will not see heaven when you die. That's reality. There's a warning here, and this warning is for everyone who names the name of Christ. So you get to verse 21. This is our text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons 
in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones probably wrote what I consider, many people consider the best commentary ever written on the Sermon on the Mount, just called the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says about, right at the very first sentence of his exposition, this is what he says. These surely are, in many ways, the most solemn words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. Indeed, were any man to utter such words, we, would, we should feel compelled not only to criticize, but condemn him. Somebody says something like this, where's your tolerance? Where's your open-mindedness? This, these words written nearly 2,000 years ago still sting and they rebuke and they're solemn today. And so what I want to bring out in the text in 21 through 23 are just three solemn truths. It's a really simple sermon. It's, it's not hard to understand. What's hard about it is embracing the truth of it. So hear me <laughs> all the way through. I'm going to be saying some things that are hard because Jesus said them. But hear me all the way through to the end, okay? The first solemn truth is in verse 21, and this flies in the face of all of American Christianity for probably the last 150, 200 years. A profession of faith in Christ is not enough. You say, wait a minute, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Stay with me, okay? But a profession of faith alone, just a profession of faith out of your mouth, is not enough to save you. How do we know that? Well, look at what you have. You have a profession. You have several professions throughout this text. Starts with a profession. Jesus deals with a profession anyway in 21. Not everyone who says to me, there's your profession. Not everyone who speaks and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right now in American Christianity and for the last 200 years, all of the emphasis has been on, do, have you made a profession of faith? And so what happens, right? What happens is in churches, you see it probably anywhere in the metroplex here today, right now, <laughs> in Sunday morning, there's somebody somewhere, all many places, standing behind a pulpit preaching and they're hoping to get to the end of the sermon so at the end of the sermon they can get people to make a profession. And they'll do everything they can to try to get the profession. It becomes salesmanship at the end of the sermon. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. If you want to come to faith in Christ, just say these words after me. And if you really, really mean it, then you'll be in the kingdom. Just make a profession. Make sure you say the right thing. What's Jesus rebuking here? Many 
many are in this boat. Not everyone who says to me, a pretty good profession. Right there, it's a pretty good profession. Lord, 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 twice. (laughs) It's a good profession. It's a right profession. Accurate. Jesus is Lord. Meaning that he's your master. Meaning that he's God. Lloyd-Jones says, they've got the right theology and they believe it passionately. They have, they're saying Jesus is Lord and they repeat it for emphasis. Lord, Lord, they have the right theology and they believe it passionately, emphatically. In fact, the word says in verse 21 gets to that idea in the Greek that it's emphatic. These people aren't just saying, well, Lord, Lord, while they're standing before him in judgment, they're crying out to him emphatically, Lord, Lord, it's me. You remember me, I walked the aisle. That preacher prayed the prayer, I prayed the prayer. He said, nobody looking around. Raise your hand. Well, somebody's looking around. I see that hand, right? So much for that, right? I see that hand, they say. So they're looking around. Well, I don't want to embarrass you or nothing, but why don't you just come right down to the front of the church in front of everybody and make your profession of faith. What are they doing? Dare I say it? They're putting a notch in their belt. If you don't believe that, just read the next newsletter that comes out. This many came forward. This, my ministry is valid because I was able to get this many people to talk them down an aisle. You know, a lot of churches are designed to make it happen easier. They're built on an angle. You ever notice that? There's churches that are built on angles. There are. This church is built on angles. Why? Well, once they get out of the pew, the gravity does a little bit of help. You notice a lot of churches have dimmer switches on their lights? Do you know when they're giving the altar call, they're playing the music really quietly? It's all emotional. And that thing could go on for a little while, maybe as long as the sermon. What are they doing? They're closing the deal. This is just salesmanship. And this is just manipulation. And they're trying to get people to make the profession, to say it. Say the right things. I'll even give you the words. Just repeat it. A statement of orthodox belief is not enough. They've got the right theology. They're believing it passionately. Although, if you don't have orthodox belief, don't think that's going to save you. It starts with knowing who Jesus is. Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he is God. And if you have that wrong, you're not saved. However, if all you have is a knowledge, a head knowledge of what the right doctrine is, but it never changes who you are, there's never any fruit from that, like we just looked at earlier in Matthew 7, you have reason to be afraid. You have reason to tremble. You don't have assurance of salvation, for sure, at least. And you might not have it at all. These are solemn words. A statement of orthodox belief is not enough, but we learn in the next part that true faith does produce obedience. The fruit. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is what the rest of the verse said. The one who enters the kingdom is the one who does the will of his Father who is in heaven. Mark chapter 3, verse 35 says, 
For whoever does the will of God is my brother my, and sister and mother. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Hebrews chapter... I have to turn to this one. I didn't want to write it all out. Hebrews chapter 13, 20 and 21. Got a new Bible and the pages stick. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. There's the promise and the foundation of the gospel. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, when you are really saved, you are saved for a purpose. You're not saved just to get your get-out-of-hell-free card. You're not just getting a free ticket out of hell. When you come to faith in Christ, God intends to do something with you. He intends to equip you with everything good. That purpose, you may do His will. That's what He wants out of you. And He will get it if you're a believer. But if you're not a believer, he's not going to get it from you. No matter how much you try to look like a Christian, no matter how much you try to talk like a Christian, no matter how much you finagle with the veneer on the outside to make it look right, you can't change your own heart. Only Christ changes the heart through the power of the gospel. You can't fake it, and you certainly can't just get somebody to profess their way into the kingdom of heaven. That much is very clear here, and it's a very solemn warning. True faith produces obedience. The second solemn truth is that spiritual activity is not enough. Spiritual activity is not enough. Verse 22, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there it is again. Right theology, believing it passionately. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So here, spiritual activity, you might look at this and say, well, there's your fruit. I mean, this would be some pretty good fruit. I mean, let's break it down. Somebody's prophesying in his name. When this isn't talking about foretelling the future. This is talking about foretelling the truth of the gospel, and preaching the word of God. Many will say, I was a preacher. So if the preachers are really being addressed here, is anyone else really safe? Lloyd-Jones points this out in his commentary as well. I mean, what preacher could even preach this text and feel safe? Didn't we preach? Didn't I do that, Lord? Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Didn't I preach for the sake of what your name represents and all of it together, your work and your ministry? Didn't I do that for you? Well, maybe you didn't. Maybe you were doing it for you. Maybe you found a pretty good gig in the ministry. Maybe you found a place where you can kind of cruise by, maybe steal somebody else's sermons, which happens a lot. Nobody wants to talk about that. I'll talk about the dirty secret 
of even the Reformed world, that happens a lot where they're stealing it and not giving credit. Not just in the SBC, although that came out too, not too long ago. It happens everywhere. And so these men are just cruising. They're cruising. They're getting paid. They're hirelings. And they're not doing the things that they're called to do by the word of God, the hard things. They're glad to do all the easy things. Get up, have some amount of notoriety and fame, maybe some even wealth. Talked to a guy recently who told me he's getting paid 100 grand a year as pastor. I'm like, well, I guess it's not terrible to be paid like that, but if you are a hireling and you're just not doing your job and you're collecting six figures, I'm telling you, that's a problem. Not necessarily that six figures is a problem. Are you doing the job or not? Are you called to it? Pastor John MacArthur gets paid pretty well. But man, he's got a big calling to shoes to fill there and that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is, we need to be, we need to, as pastors, as preachers, we need to be evaluating our motives. Why am I doing this? Some people go into ministry for the affirmation. They don't care about the money. But everybody tells them that they're such a great person and all this. Some people go there to try to work out their psychological stuff. You know, I had a mess of a life, so I'm going to try to figure it out in ministry. There's a lot of reasons people could end up in this spot. Spiritual activity is not enough. There are many that will find themselves in this position. How many? Doesn't really say, but be reminded of Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few. How few? I don't know. But the older I get, the more I'm beginning to really believe it's Jesus meant what he said. Many and few. Many will hear those words. Few are going to find eternal life. Over the years, I've done evangelism ministry, and I've met people all over the country, and it's been a while now. I've been doing it for about 20 years, in some form or the other. My heart has been broken over and over and over again as I've heard of dear friends abandoning the gospel over and over and over again. I'm getting tired of hearing about it. I mean, we see it in the church. I've talked, I've talked about this before. pastor talks about it. But I've seen it with friends in street evangelism, people who are preaching a pretty hard message, people who are preaching some stuff. I mean, it was spot on. Elevating the nature and the character of God is holiness, talking about the commands of God, talking about repentance and hell and judgment and faith in Christ and elevating Christ. I'm talking about men that by their outward profession and by the preaching that they did, you would assume that they had really incredible ministries and God was doing great things. It looked like there was some evidence of power on their ministries. I'm not talking about a bunch of slackers. Just this week, in the last couple of weeks actually, I've heard of three in the last two or three weeks that have killed themselves. 
I don't know what happened with these ones. I know of others and what's happened with them. Some of it, we watched the slow fade happen. You know, the slowly fading out of life with believers and life of the church and slowly just doing this slow like they're getting beamed up or something in Star Trek. You know what I'm saying? Just that slowly disappearing and then they're gone. And every time I hear about it, it breaks my heart. And you think about the families in these cases. This one guy left behind several children under the age of seven. So, you know, I come to a text like this, and I'm thinking about this church, thinking about the church I'm responsible to God for. And I'm asking myself the question, have I ever sounded this warning here? And I think I have, like, along the way, but I don't think I've ever preached, maybe I have, I don't remember, ever preaching these verses here. But I know Pastor, when he was preaching through John, he hit John chapter 2, 23 through 25, and there's some really good warnings there I'll probably touch on in a minute. But i got to warn you, because love does warn. If you profess, you say you know Christ, and you've been through the membership class, and you've signed the covenant that we're going to look at here in a little bit with, with Vivian, we're going to go over that. You've done all that. You've said all the right things, and you got us to believe it. Fine. You will stand before Christ. He's the only one that counts converts. He's the only one that can do it accurately anyway. Spiritual activity is not enough. And if preaching is not enough, just ask yourself, what about what you do, whatever your spiritual activity is? Spiritual warfare is not enough, casting out demons. There's some evidence of power on somebody's ministry if they can cast out demons. Miraculous ministry, many mighty works, all in his name, not enough. Because there's something else going on there. Reality is not there. There's no reality to the profession. Every now and then, that comes out. Every now and then, it's like the Word of God says, your sin will find you out. If it doesn't, it's a good, by the way, it's a good thing when your sin finds you out. Wouldn't it be better to have the opportunity to repent than to die and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and hear these words? Are you kidding me? Can you imagine that? Imagine you're on your deathbed and you're sure you're going home to heaven, right? I, made, I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I did the decision card. I joined the church. I did all those things. But then you die and you stand before God on the day of judgment, right? And Jesus looks at you and says, depart from me. I never knew you. There was not any ever, ever a time in your life that I knew you. It was never real. You didn't lose your salvation. You never had it. That is sobering. Just imagine yourself in that position. You are on your deathbed. You are thinking, I'm going home to see Jesus. You get there, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. There's a lot of other things you could add to the list here that Jesus has. I did, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. You could add 
abortion activism. You could, you could add you know, being an abolitionist. You could add being involved in conservative politics. You can talk about being obsessed with apologetics, uh, having favorite Christian organizations. You love going to conferences and hearing preaching at conferences. Uh, academic approaches to theology. You love to think about theology. An obsession with prophecy, no matter where you land on that. Uh, you know, a love to come and hear the Word of God preached. You just like the entertainment value. You know, wow, what did that guy say? Sometimes you just like to roast the preacher when it's over. Go home, have roast preacher after, you know, after you're done with your meal, whatever. So the question is this. It's not what do you do. Jeff was right about this. He mentioned it earlier. It's not what you do. It's who you know. Do you really know Jesus? Have you really repented? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you seen this change in your life? Do you remember 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When did that happen? When did that happen? happen. If that never happened, and you know you've been walking through the motions, but there's never been a real change in your life, you need to stop right where you are in your life. Whatever's going on, you need to stop and you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Prove yourself. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you've been disqualified, or some translations, unless indeed you have failed to pass the test? Better to do that, to stop wherever you are in your life and take a break and read 1 John. Five, at least five different litmus tests in there to find out whether or not you're really in Christ. Prayerfully read 1 John and say, ask, ask God. God, show me what I am. Do you know how hard it is for you to see what you are? The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. No man can know it. Your heart can trick you. You can trick yourself into believing that you have something in Christ that you do not have that you do not possess. You profess it, but you don't possess it. Take some time. And if you don't, you, find, you go through that and you find, I'm not what I claim to be, cry out to God for a new heart. How long? Preacher, you know, I've been crying out to God for a new heart. I haven't gotten it yet. How long do I keep crying out to God? Well, if you I've heard Pastor give this illustration. He probably got it from somewhere else too, but it goes like this. Like, you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're in danger of drowning. What would you do? You'd cry out. Why? Because your life is on the line. How long would you cry out for if you're about to die in that ocean? You keep crying out until someone came to rescue you. So if you're in that spot, you're saying, I haven't seen that transformation, keep crying out because as long as you can cry out, it means you still are alive and God could still do something. Keep 
crying out for mercy. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what you cry out. You want a sinner's prayer? Get one from the Bible. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he's merciful. He is. There's people in this room that they did that and God saved them. We were talking about our Sunday school class today. What has God delivered you from? And we went over the specific sins. And they're ugly. They're ugly. Sin's ugly. Has he, de- has he delivered you from that? Say, Jesus saved me from my sins. Wonderful. What sins? What has he delivered you from? The third and final solemn truth. Jesus' profession about your faith matters more than your profession of him. That We see that. I've already alluded to it a little bit. Matthew 7, verse 23. Then I will declare to them, that word can be translated profess. Then I will declare to them. Here's his profession. You, you want a profession? Don't worry about yours as much as you worry about his. What is his profession? I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. His profession is that there is not any time when he knew you in this context. Now, uh, go over to Titus chapter 1. We did this on Wednesday night, but we'll do it again here. Titus chapter 1, verse uh, 14 and 15. I'm sorry, is that right? 15 and 16. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And here it is. This is the same Greek word from Matthew 7, verse 23, where it says, translated, I declare to you. Right? I said it could be translated profess. This is the same word. In verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What is Jesus professing? They profess to know God. What does Jesus profess about them? Let's go over to John chapter 2. I know Pastor preached it, but it's worth seeing because it's the same sort of thing with the Greek words that are the same and points out a very important point. In the evangelical world, we put a lot of emphasis. Do you believe in Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? Do you believe in him? And that's right, because the scriptures say we should. But in John chapter 2, verse 24, you got these people who are coming in verse 23 that saw the miracles that Jesus is doing, and they're coming, and they believe in his name, according to 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They were following him, for the bennies, the benefits. A lot of people do that. Why do people go to church? Somebody asked me that this week. This is all true. Why do people go to church if there's a bunch of fakes? Why do they do it? A lot of reasons. They go because their family wants them to be there. They go because their friends are there. They go because it's the cultural thing to do in Texas. You go because it's just what you've always done your entire life. There's a lot of reasons. Some people do it because it's good business sense. 
You go there, you hang out with Christians who are businessmen, you develop relationships, and it's good for business. Slap a Jesus fish on your business card, right? There's a lot of reasons people go to church, but listen. And they will even say they believe. Many believe in his name. Verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. That word entrust is the same Greek word for believe. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. The most important thing is not what you do with Jesus. The most important thing is what Jesus is going to do with you. By the way, as a side note, this whole statement, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you, depart from me. This kind of comes, there's actually a, a connection here to a Jewish synagogues that when they excommunicated somebody, they said something like this. His profession is that there is not any time when he knew you. The second thing is, he will command you to depart. Depart from me. Sounds like Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What is the evidence that you're guilty in this court of law? The evidence that you're guilty is your lawlessness. We've been going over the first four commandments the last few weeks, right? It's been heavy stuff. Nobody can listen to what the law says about us and come out of that feeling anything less than convicted. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We come away from that convicted. But when you've got a pattern of life, and that's what this is talking about, you practice, you're doing lawlessness. You're working lawlessness. That is what you are doing. You do all the false profession stuff on the outside, but on the inside, you go to sin like a moth goes to the flame. You're a worker of lawlessness. It could be Sabbath breaking. We've gone over the, these are the ones we went over the last few weeks. Sabbath breaking, you know, the Lord's Day. Blasphemy, right? Calling yourself a Christian, saying that, but then living completely different than that. If a video could be played of what you do and think and say, and feel during the week, we could throw it up here on the screen, how long would you even stay in the room? Your idolatry, believing that there's a God who tolerates these kinds of professions and these patterns in your life when that God doesn't even exist. If it wasn't for the hope of the gospel, we'd have no hope at all. Right? Listen to what Romans says in Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The only one that can say that is the one who have, who've, who's felt the weight of his sin, his or her sin. They felt the weight of their sin and they feel, I have to go to Christ. Where else can I go? There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Christ died for sinners. He rose from the dead. It's like the disciple, where else do we go, Lord? Where, do you else, where else can you go? There's nowhere else you can go. I have spent the last month trying to condemn you. I don't know if you've noticed. It's, in, it's on purpose. 
Don't think less of me because of that. It's been on purpose. Why? Because if you don't know Christ in reality, you need the guns, the cannons, or the commandments, the law of God pointed against you to obliterate your self-righteousness. But if you've been listening carefully, at the end of every sermon, I give you a little bit of hope. And I'm like, I can't remember what verse it was the first week that I quoted. Like Romans 5, 8, and 9 last week, I think it was. I, try, I give something about the gospel at the end of every one. The thing is, we're so convinced of our self-righteousness, that has to die. That has to go away. You have to understand you have nothing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's where you have to be, or it's really not going to be saving faith. You've got to come to the end of yourself and an end of your sin and say, I need Christ. And the only way to get there is to face and feel the weight of condemnation. That's biblical gospel. That's John 3.16. If you read 17 and 18, along with it. It's John chapter 3, verse 36. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Present tense, right now in Greek. You need to feel the weight of the wrath. You need to feel the weight of condemnation. And when you feel that, the right response isn't, let me see if I can obey God's law. You'll never get there. Those are only canons meant to destroy your self-righteousness. Let me see if I can be a good person and go to church. That will never get you there. Let me see if I can cook up a testimony to make it sound like I've been saved. That will never get you there. Not your profession. It has to be Christ. Christ must save you. And I've said that, and I'm going to say it again. Well, Vivian said it in her testimony, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You don't have to perish. Some of you have heard the gospel over and over and over, and you've done nothing with it. Some of you pretend you've done something with it, but nothing has happened. And only you know that, and only God knows that. I can't know that. What you have to do is understand this. As much weight and condemnation as you heard about, why did God send his son? Because he loves. It was motivated by love. But that's why hell is as hot as it is. Because when you reject, on top of all of your sin, it's bad enough that you sin against God. But when you add insult to injury by not only living as if there's no law, being lawless, but then living as if the offer of salvation has not been made to you, how severe do you think judgment will be on that day? You've lived as if there's no law, but you rejected the sacrifice that was made so that you could be made right with him. And the one who made the sacrifice is going to be the one who's sitting on the throne in judgment. The one who did it, who laid down his life, is the one, the one you've rejected. Yes, you've sinned against the law of God and you've acted as if it doesn't exist, but now you're going to stand before the one who laid down his life and died for the sake of sinners. What do you think will happen? Depart from me. 
I never knew you. As we wrap this up, I've given you that hope of the gospel, but I'm gonna, I, I really feel the need to just plead with you how solemn the reality of judgment is. If you die today, you will stand before him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I'm just going to read these verses and we're done. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There are people in hell today, people that you know, people that I know. It's a real place. It's just as real as where we're sitting right now. People in hell are just as conscious and aware as you and I are conscious and aware right now. There is thirst in hell. There is memory in hell. You will, if you die outside of Christ, you will remember this sermon. Please take this seriously. Please stop in the course of your life and consider the gospel and consider whether or not you are right with God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you know I have struggled with this sermon this week. I don't think I've ever felt the weight of preaching like I felt it this week. The responsibility of a dying man to stand before dying men and preach. And Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, you would take your word and make it effectual in the lives of those that you've called. I pray, Lord, that you call somebody, Lord. I pray, Lord, for some of the young people in this church have grown up in this church and they have not repented, they've not believed, they've never been, made a public profession of faith because it has not happened. And yet there are others who have made some sort of profession, but you will profess something else on the day of judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Lord, help us to actually believe these things and not just quote them. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that is in this spot where they recognize that their profession is false, I pray that they would not hide behind their pride. What a horrible thing it would be just to, to hide behind it, try to cover it up, and act as if it's not true and then die and stand before you and face this reality. 
I pray that you would break their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring a conviction that's inescapable, and that you would not let them rest. They wouldn't be able to sleep. I pray they wouldn't be able to sleep. I pray they wouldn't be able to eat. I pray they wouldn't be able to, to even think about anything else. They would think only about whether they're right with you or not, and that they would run to the cross and then know that they're right with you. I can't do it. I can't make it happen. But I pray, Lord, that you would by the power of your Spirit, and I ask that you would. I beg and I plead with you, Lord, please save those that need to come to you. Only you know who they are. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.